Welcome to episode three of AI for Dummies and our first episode with a guest, the esteemed Mark Mays. Suman and I are longtime friends with Mark's son, Ryan, and have been lucky to know Mark for over a decade. He's the former CEO of Clear Channel, which in addition to owning a ton of radio stations, created and spun out Live Nation, operated outdoor ads, billboards around the world, and a bunch of other cool stuff. We talk about the future of the music industry, AI voice cloning, Grimes and her offer to split royalties with people who use her voice in AI songs. And we talk about why artists can't get paid on Spotify. At the end, we actually clone Mark's voice. So stay tuned to see how easy it is to clone somebody else's voice using AI. And here's AI Mark introducing the episode to start. Hey, it's Mark Mays. I had a lot of fun recording this episode of uh, I for Dummies with Will and Suman. Stay tuned to hear how the music industry might change and also how my voice got cloned. All right, let's get to it. When Suman's talking, Will's going to go on mute. And when Will's talking, Suman's going to go on mute. Can you do that? We can. Is that, Are you getting dual feedback in headphones? Hang on. You got to get the audio. It's still coming out of the computer. Okay. Yeah. How about now? I think we're just sitting too close together. All right. Thank you for your patience. I mean, I think this is, this is perfect. That sounds good. Now I can hear everything. Okay. So let's... Let's hop into it. We have here our esteemed guest, Mark Mays, who uh, we got to know per personally in college, which was super fun, as well as professionally. Um, you've had, a, a, I think, what's a really relevant career for what we're going to discuss. So AI for Dummies, uh, we, we're, ta we're talking about how AI affects a bunch of industries. You have uh, a deep career in kind of media, entertainment, working at... Um, Clear Channel and having spent time at Live Nation. So excited to have you, but with that, maybe we'll do a quick intro for you, Mark. Yeah, not not to underhype, okay. but not just working at Clear Channel, but uh, really grew Clear Channel into the national power it was and was CEO of Clear Channel um, and sold Clear Channel. So would love uh, just a quick story of how you got into that. And we don't need to linger on it too long, but kind of your professional background and, and um, how you got to clear channel. Okay, I'm gonna give you the three the three minute history of Mark. How's that? That sounds good. Yes. And that start because it actually started at Vanderbilt, where I uh, where I met my uh, bride uh, Patty, who you guys know is the better half of our uh, relationship, <laughs> and you guys know her well. And uh, so she, uh, her, and I met. I'll tell you the story. I was little sister chairman. Here's a little history. Uh, I was a little sister chairman at the fraternity and recruiting. I was uh, recruiting little sisters to come. And what we would do is we'd recruit all the really cute uh, freshman girls to come and be little sisters. And then all of the guys would then follow all the little girls, the very good, attractive girls. So I had recruited all these girls. I was a sophomore. And... Uh, um, um, I had recruited them and so I was putting them together and I said, oh, I'm going to make, have you all have big brothers so that you get to know more people and everything in the fraternity, put down three people that you do not want to date, right? These are people that you do not want to date and I'm going to match you. And so you have this very kind of fun relationship with an additional person within the fraternity and Patty, I got Patty's. The first thing I did is I looked up because I was, I was immediately attracted to her. I, Pulled up, and the first person that she wanted as her big brother that she did not want to date, Mark Mays. <laughs> Wait, I've never so heard this that story. That's was, epic. That was 
I took that as kind of a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, ended, we ended up dating through, we ended up dating through my collegiate career. Uh, came out of Vanderbilt, went and did investment banking for a couple of years in Dallas for a regional bank uh, called Epler Garen Turner, which which uh, you know back in those days was smaller kind of, and they had the, the kind of the Texas and Southwest. Uh, base and I was uh, I did uh, I was the only analyst uh, for a team of about seven or eight professionals so I did everything uh, from uh, M&A to um, to uh, IPOs to private placements financings a whole bunch of stuff that I was you know just they uh, did all of the grunt work for uh, and then uh, went got uh, uh, went to Columbia Business School. Um, went worked for Cap Cities ABC while I was there. Uh, my dad had started this company called Clear Channel, and uh, um, he lost his CFO right as I was graduating, and said, "Hey, listen, why don't you come back and work with me?" And offered me you know, what I thought was, it was about half of what I, all the offers I had in, in New York City uh, at the investment banking firms. But he kept saying, oh, but I'm gonna give you these stock options. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, oh, well, I'm gonna go give it a try. Patty and I were just getting married. We decided we'd go back to San Antonio and give it a try. And uh, um, so when, when I joined Clear Channel, he had probably about 12 uh, to 14 radio stations, uh, $20 million in revenue, $1 million in EBITDA, and uh, was just starting to, uh, to grow it. And, uh, you know, uh, and the old saying, if you'd rather be lucky than good, the confluence of events that then came out in the 90s with regard to deregulation and being there at the right time. Uh, with kind of a high energy level and dad thinking, okay, now I've got somebody that's excited about the next 20 years. And so uh, the, the deregulation started in the early 90s. Can you touch on that really quick? Part what, of that. He spent a lot of time. What exactly was the rule change? Like what, what happened in deregulation? So the rule changes, right? So it, it, it was multiple rule changes. So it was multiple. So when I joined, you could only own uh, one AM and one FM in each market. Uh, no, that was before, and then they had changed it to two AMs and two FMs that you could own in each market. And then they said, well, at that point you can only own seven AMs and seven FMs. They changed that to 12 FMs and 12 AMs. And then that progressively got up to where you could go in the early 90s. It was 20 AMs and 20 FMs. And then in 1996, they said you could own up to seven or eight AMs and FMs in any market, depending upon its size, and you could own unlimited in the, in the US. So wow. the cap came off uh, dramatically in my first six, seven, in my first seven years that I was, was at the company. And so, as you can imagine, with a, uh, a cap, uh, a regulatory cap, when that came off, the, the industry started consolidating rapidly. We had access to capital. Um, we were, you know, uh, a public company at that point in time. Uh, nobody really followed radio. One of my first jobs was, I remember just walking along Wall Street in 1989 and, and trying to relate uh, to people exactly how radio worked. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, hey, listen, we sell advertising. You know, it's the, it's the the triangles, I said, we have to go get an audience and then we have to sell that to an advertiser and we have to keep all three of us happy. And so it was a, uh, 
people really didn't understand it as much back then. Yeah. So, uh, you know, spending a lot of time uh, uh, educating them. And then, uh, and so then through the 90s, and then we got into, after that, you know, we kept uh, uh, consolidating and uh, buying radio stations to where we, um, you know, ended up with 1,000, 1,200 radio stations. Uh, and uh, along the way, we were buying television stations. We bought a lot of independent TV stations, which we flipped to Fox affiliates. We started buying billboards at our, what we call outdoor um, throughout the U.S., and that was a, uh, a footprint that we actually took internationally. We ended up being in 60 countries in the, in the billboard and outdoor business. And then we were y'all also, in Southeast uh, Asia with that. I, I feel like I have a memory of landing in like Cambodia and seeing a clear channel billboard and thinking, ah, like thinking of you guys. Like I think one of you guys, I think it was one of you guys sent me a, uh, a you, you, I think it was actually South America and you were in a remote part and you, and you texted me a picture of a clear channel, but it may have been Chile or, yeah. or one of these places. And you texted me a billboard going, Oh my God, you guys are everywhere. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and uh, so we, yes, we were Southeast Asia. We were in China, had a big business in China. Uh, so we were all through, we were in 60 different countries in that billboard business. Um, um, and then uh, we also got in the live entertainment business uh, where we started buying amphitheaters and concert promoters and whatnot and rolling that up. We eventually spun that out. That became Live Nation. Uh, so Live Nation is the old Clear Channel Entertainment um that then start they bought when they bought Ticketmaster, that's when it actually really started working well for them. Yeah, that's cool. By the way, <clears throat> I wanna I wanna back up a bit. I want to talk about just like personal stories for for a second. So uh we met you we met you at Vanderbilt, freshman year at Vanderbilt. Your son was one of our fraternity brothers and good friends. And so we have a few stories uh from from you kind of personally, uh one of which are you you're a Rolling Stones fan, correct? I'm a Rolling Stones and Grateful Dead fan. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you remember the, the Rippy story of us. This was, I think, senior year. I don't know if this is kosher to, to speak about on a public uh, public channel here. but Rippy's is the most important bar in Nashville. I have nothing to hide. I am not a, I'm not a public entity. I'm not, I am not the CEO of a public company anymore. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> so the, the story is I, we loved Mark, and so he was always a part of our kind of college experience. Uh, we went to the CMAs with you. My first time skiing, I think Will's first time skiing, yeah. was in Jackson Hole. Uh, Mark generously paid. Wait, there were four or five of us had never skied before and got us a half-day lesson, and we slid down the slopes. And I ended up spending a winter in Sun Valley. <laughs> so know that your investment paid off. Like, you know. Uh, yeah, Chris, Chris <laughs> paid off. You, were, yeah. you got off of your bum and onto the <laughs> exactly. skis in no time. <laughs> yeah. I remember Chris, our friend, broke his arm within the first 10 minutes of, of skiing uh, in Jackson Hole. And now he's... he's yes, I remember me and Knuckle had to... Yeah. <laughs> I had to entertain Knuckle, right? Or I want to... Yeah, for like seven days, I had to entertain Chris, which was... <laughs> yeah. He, he, <laughs> I was he, planning he on working, and that was... And then, then I <laughs> he had different ideas. Uh, one of my favorite stories from you, though, is you love the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. I remember once I was super excited. I had a Rolling Stones needlepoint belt, and we go to this bar, Rippies. It was towards the end of senior year. We had been drinking a bit, and I, I remember I, it was my worst negotiation ever because you go, I like this belt a lot, and you offered me, I think you offered me 100 bucks, and I think I negotiated you down to 37 cents and gave you the belt. 
And the next morning, I'm at brunch with that, you. That is, that is correct. That is correct. It was. It'll go down in the history of the worst negotiation of all Probably times of all in anybody's time. negotiation. Yeah. I, I completely disagree. <laughs> I think it was the best negotiation of my life because here we are sitting here doing this podcast. We have a lifelong relationship. We've and kept your pants touch. are falling down. And my pants are falling down. You don't even have a belt. And I could and I and I and I could have always bought it. In fact, I did get the belt back the next day. I was like, "Where the heck is my belt? I'm sitting there with your son." <laughs> and he goes, "Your dad, my dad bought the belt, and then you get you actually gave it back to me. Uh, so you, you parted with that with that belt." Um, but I would say the reason I bring the, these stories up is, uh, and my I remember my dad coming for Father's Day. He always talked about how we talked about your professional accomplishments how just genuine uh, and a nice guy you were all throughout kind of our our college and truly kind of this like mentor, friend, father kind of figure and certainly learned a lot, as you mentioned before this started on just how to be a, a uh, in, in society as we as we transition from college to kind of our professional worlds. So wanted to tell a couple of funny stories and, and thank you for for investing us uh, in us as, as kind of young college uh, kids. <laughs> It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience for sure. Joyful for me as well. Cool. As you think about or, or think back on that journey at Clear Channel, and this will parlay into then where things are going, but what were some of the big changes you saw in the radio and music industry over those two decades or two decades plus? Well, I mean, I mean, everything is, you know, I think there was a couple of things. I think there's the, you know, you think about the changing tides, right? So there was the regulatory environment changed on top, right? Which allowed aggregation and other things with regard to governance and corporate structures and stuff like that. But underlying you had the technological changes, right? So you had all of the uh, different aspects with, with regard to, um, you know, I mean, I remember when I got in, when I was, when I was 14 or whatnot, and I was working in a radio station and we'd have these big wheels of tape and I'd be cutting up tapes into to smaller little carts where people could record commercials and stuff like that. So it was, uh, you know, it's just a different technology versus, you know, all of a sudden, you know, audio you could listen to on the computer and you could, uh, create studios, you could create, uh, a whole different uh, uh, listening experience that ended up, you know, in my career all the way online with streaming. So you have this great ability of, of you know, what they call broadcast, which is one point to a broad audience to almost a, a you know, an individual cast to individual people that could customize exactly what they wanted and how they wanted it. So it, it was a uh, technologically a uh, override underneath that and then and then once the the regulatory thing changed and then the technology and the technology continues to change right even today and so yeah. that is uh, that's the that's the challenge you know for the for the next 10 have you 20 had, years is how do you how do you use that technology to continue to develop additional revenue streams and did did artists used to just get paid better from radio have you seen the Snoop Dogg clip from the interview where he recently where he's talking about Spotify and it's like my friends Why don't you are, pull that up? It's exciting, but streaming got to get, get their shit together. Because I don't understand how the fuck you get paid off of that shit. <laughs> like, I mean, can somebody explain to me how you can get a billion streams and not get a million dollars? Like, that shit don't make sense to me. Like, I don't know who the fuck running the streaming industry, if you in here or not. <laughs> 
But nigga, you need to give us some information on how the fuck to track this money down. Because one plus one ain't adding up to two. That shit don't add up. And I have to say it. Because that's the main gripe with a lot of us artists is that we do major numbers with streams and this shit, but it don't add up to the money. Like, what the fuck is the money? When I first came out, my records would sell based off of physical. If you sold a million copies, that means if $9.99, $9 million, you get this percentage, that's what it is. So if I sell how many streams, how much money do I get? It's not being translated and, and it's not working for the artist right now. And I just want to speak to that in yeah, the no, music industry. Talk. Like, that's fucked up. And we need to find a way to figure that out the same way the writers are figuring out. The writers are striking because streaming, they can't get paid. Because when it's on the platform, it's not like in the box office. In the box office, if it does all these numbers, you may get an up. Oh, it did this many, here's another check. But on streaming, you got 300,000 hours that somebody watched your movie. Where's the money? And I know I'm going off a script right now, but oh, no. fuck it. This is business. <laughs> yeah. This is business. You know what I'm saying? This is a room full of business people, and somebody may hear this and be able to do something about it so that way the next artist don't have to struggle or cry or try to figure out how to get to his money. Because some of these artists are streaming millions and millions and millions and millions of fucking streams, and they don't got no millions of dollars in their pocket. So I just yeah. wanted to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk that talk. I'm sorry. So there's always been uh, uh, payola and whatnot that you uh, were not, um, you could not pay artists. Um, and it goes back to the 60s and 70s. Uh, you pay uh, with the, the royalties to the underlying musicians and whatnot through uh, companies like ASCAP and BMI that actually, so you're paying uh, if you write a song, if you perform and stuff like that. But the actual artist, they usually historically always got paid from the record companies and the sales of records. Uh, you were not allowed to pay the artist directly. Mm. And that was a federal law. Excuse me. So in the streaming world, that's changed where Spotify and Apple Music and those guys, as you stream, mm -hmm. you can pay the artist. In fact, you're required to pay the right. artist. And that's a different economic model than the broadcast well, And I guess model. that's because and the so streaming actually, is comped against buying a CD. Right. Exactly. So if you were an artist, you would get on the radio. One of the reasons was so people would find out about you and then go to the store and buy your CD or buy your record or something like that, right? And that would get money in your right, right. It was it was, there, there, the highest correlation between record sales was how much airplay was played on the radio stations. And so what the federal government wanted to prevent was us getting paid to play the records, right? So there was no way that they didn't want us to pay uh, to influence the uh, the the albums and whatnot that we were playing so that was the theory would people so would it also be in spotify for to come to you and pay you or was that fair game like people could pay to yes promote? no no no. artists could not pay us and we could not God, pay artists both ways that's cool uh i remember i bring it up because i'm curious what you think if there's a economic model that works online i remember my one of my favorite projects what kicked me down the entrepreneurship path was rage chill this my first app I ever made in college where you slid a bar from Rage to Chill. I don't know if you remember this. And it played songs. And uh, it blew up on Reddit. And I was Let's not underplay Rage Chill, by the yeah, way. It was I an mean, epic app it, during our college career. Sick. 
and I was actually interning at the FCC, which I've talked to you about, and there's funny stories about like the eighth floor at the FCC and the old commissioner. But I, I was interning there the summer Rage Chill blew up, and I remember we were on the front page of Reddit, and we were illegally streaming songs from an Amazon S3 bucket, and I panicked and left. We were, we were like, I always tell the story, we were the floor above the enforcement floor, which is just made up. Like, I don't even, I don't think they had an enforcement floor at the FCC headquarters, but I ran back to my dorm and, like, pull up my servers, and we're streaming millions of songs, and I, you were gracious enough to talk to me, and your point was, like, Pandora still loses money. And this is like the, the success, the model, and they can't figure it out. Like, how do you generate enough ad revenue to cover the rights you have to pay? And I'm curious, um, has anything changed there? Like, you see Snoop Dogg complaining about artists can't get paid off a billion streams on Spotify, but Spotify's not really making money either. It's well, so they're not, and I think that you know they tried to. Uh, I think that the subscription model works, right? I think that has always worked, uh, but you know you don't have all of your uh, listeners that are and users that are subscription uh, payers. Um, so the subscription model works. The ad model. What they found out is what they tried to do is they tried to go to all these podcasts, right, and create content and talent where they could get a leveraged model. They had a fixed cost, and if they could get enough listeners, then they could make it work. But I think they didn't get enough listeners, so they're they're kind of retrenching on some of that. Uh, so uh, I think Spotify. I think they actually now are free cash flow. Oh, positive. they are. Uh, I think they are. I think. I think it's because of the subscription revenue. Yeah. Um, but I think they have. You know, they pay a, an enormous amount of their revenue out to artists. Um, and of course, the artists are never. It. You know, it's never enough for the well, artists. I, I think I've read uh, now that you say but, that they've they've like a set percentage of their revenue goes to artists. So they're not on the hook for a per stream fee. It's it's like whatever percentage of listen time you as an artist earned, you get that percentage from the bucket of royalties, I think. I don't yeah. know if that's right. I think that is directionally yes. correct. I, I, I think that's the theory, you know. I think people argue with it with the con you know, exactly the mathematics behind right. it. But I think yes, that's the theory. This is my perspective on it. I think there is a consumer kind of surplus. Basically, it's all in favor of the consumer because for my demographic, almost everyone I know is a Spotify subscriber. Oh, sure. Even my my parents are Spotify subscribers. But I go home to my my parents' house, and my dad's got hundreds of records. Right? He has vinyl records, and he has. I remember getting my first CD as a kid. In sync, I think was a CD, and you would pay uh, even then, right? You're paying 10, 20 bucks for 10 songs, right? And I would listen to music, you know, ever so often. Now I consume content on Spotify, whether it's podcasts, uh, songs, constantly throughout the day, constantly, right? And I pay, I think, I, mean, I don't know what I pay, maybe 10 or 15 bucks a month. By the way, I'm super price insensitive. I would pay more given the value they, they get. Uh, give to me. So even though basically I think consumers are getting a lot of listening and they're listening to tons of artists, that's all being split amongst this big group of artists for all these listening minutes. And Spotify is not making a ton of money from it. And then neither are the artists, which brings me to my next point, which a lot of artists are making money. Actually, my impression is on live events. So you have um, Taylor Swift recently. I think she's making however hundred millions of dollars on her um, massively produced show, which obviously you're familiar with from Live Nation. So I think, I, I don't know what your perspective is, Mark, on kind of like how you then 
monetize instead of maybe from like listening online or whatever it is from then taking that and getting people to come see you. In they person. should sell belts for 37 cents. It's a huge moneymaker. <laughs> well, so the old model was right is you went you went on tour to sell records, right? And you didn't make any money touring. Mm. And then when they started not making any money on the records, they're like, hey, we better we got it. We better start making some money on the touring. And they the ability to increase pricing on the tickets enabled mm. them to the artists are like hey forget it you know we're going to increase pricing it used to be that they didn't want to you know they wanted their fans to have you know everybody have equal oh, access and now they're like hey listen we want we got to we got to monetize our ability to show up and so that was a big difference and uh and yeah, the artists make a ton more money touring now today, but that's been the, it's probably been the case for the last 10 years, uh, maybe 15 years. Uh, so they're making more and more of their, uh, you know, revenue pie out of, out of, out of touring for sure. Well, I'm curious to, let's start at the dummy part as we transition to the AI talk. What, what's been your exposure? Have you played I'm, with? I'm the dummy part. We, we are, the dummy I mean, part. You guys are the AI. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. CEO of a public for, company. CEO of a public yeah. company. I don't know about dummy, but. Uh, <laughs> I think we're all we're all dummies in the face in the face of what is happening here. So, have you played with ChatGPT or any other tools? Uh, what, what's been your exposure to this stuff? You mentioned before the call that you're so a Lotus One Two Three guy. So, um, <laughs> yes, I'm it's hard for me to to to, to change. <laughs> so I'm uh, I. Uh, uh, I have played with Chatbeat uh, GBT just in the last couple of months. I remember uh, uh, after Daniel's wedding, who is child number three, as you guys know. Uh, Gosh, Daniel uh, got I married. Was like, well, I just want to see. Wow. I want to see. I want to see how they're. Uh, how I, maybe I should have gone online and uh, I did rehearsal. You know, Dad's rehearsal dinner toast. You know, create one for me and. Uh, and uh, this was after the wedding. And I was like, I just want to see if it's going to be as good as mine. And boom, it comes up. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Which I had done before. There's a little nuggets in there I could have used. Yeah. So, uh, well, you didn't, you didn't have it for Ryan's like wedding. And that went pretty well. So, Yeah, I did yeah. not. And that was, that was uh, I, wish I, I wish I would have because it maybe would have concised it instead of the 40 minutes, 30 minutes, or however long that toast was with, oh, with, right. the, uh, with the golf ball. Yeah. That was a long yeah. one. Yeah, and, and pouring Coronas in, in the bucket as well. I remember, I remember it. It was good. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's always room in life for more beer. So have that, you was the, that was the takeaway. That away. was the takeaway, but sometimes not. Sometimes there isn't, <laughs> uh, except for sometimes. Uh, have you seen these AI clones and like these biggie small raps and uh, any of these audio clips? Uh, so I went, uh, you know, you sent me that and I have not really heard a lot of them. And, uh, you know, I went to the site just to click and hear one. And, uh, but I was, but it was a rap song, so I can only last about 20 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> well, I think the tape, <laughs> that's so hilarious. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, I couldn't tell the difference. So um, I'm sure that that becomes a big, you know, sticking point from an artistics, right? It was all about, 
you know, whether it's books or photography as it goes online and how do you trademark and uh, uh, the ability to have all these great paintings and stuff like that. So I think there's, there is uh, clearly going to be, you know, a opportunity on how you protect intellectual property as you, as you move forward through the, through the AI. Well, let's nice. let's well let's hit him, uh, Mark Bear, with the rap song for for twenty well, we seconds. We can play it on. Uh, we we'll just insert it right here. some cool ones the i also i mean this is also rap i love the drake and the weekend one that's my favorite one so far um yeah but but the immediate i don't know if i listen you, to that like one, i just from like a music uh taste perspective like do you think it'd be cool to hear i've seen some that are john lennon covering modern songs like a Coldplay song um would you envision yourself if there was a spotify playlist of like john lennon covering all these songs and it's this ai generated voice is that just weird to or you the Rolling or Stones. something sacred about that, that that rubs you the wrong way? Yeah, or the Rolling Stones. Um, so there's – for I mean I think that's a very personal, uh, right? So I'm not saying from a legalistic perspective. Uh, from a very personal consumer perspective, I think you know music is all about – listening to things you like and so mm -hmm. me i love you know john lennon and if he was covering different stuff i'm sure i would enjoy it uh, and i'd probably listen to it so uh whether it would make one of my playlists uh, you know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> wait do you use spotify to make playlists actually on a on a on a slight aside Oh, I'm so, I'm just so disappointed you're not following me on my Spotify. <laughs> we will follow you right now. Count us two more Spotify subs. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some generational behavior here. I think that I, I don't know about you, but the younger and younger people I meet, they're curating less playlists, I feel like, because you get the Spotify Discover Weekly, which is an AI generated, you know, based on your taste and machine learning. Here's what you're going to like sure, this week. Yeah. And people just don't make their own lists anymore, I feel like. Well, well I would say the, the old school thing was, uh, I'm sure you did this, Mark, I'm sure you, I don't know if you did this, Will, was you make, a, you know, you like a, a girl or a guy, you, you, you like someone, you give them, you know, you burn a CD and you make them your favorite songs and you pass along to them. That was kind of like this, and then you wrote the names of the song, like one through, I don't know if you ever did this. Is that how you got Patty out of the person I definitely wouldn't date list? Well, how it used to be when I was in college is you would make party tapes, right? So you spend an afternoon and you'd have all your vinyls and you'd have a party tape and you would, um, I mean, I have party tape one to party tape 23, I think. And we would make wow. afternoon party. We would, we'd spend the afternoon, you know, making 45 minutes on one side, you flip it and 45 minutes on the other side and everybody'd get to pick a song and you record it and it became part of the thing. And then you would play those during parties. You know, yeah. you think about your day, right? You just you just plug a phone into a speaker. We had sound, you know, massive speakers and sound systems and amplifiers and yeah. you know, all of that. So that's I mean, it's just evolved to now 
you can do it very easily. Yeah, we on, had the aux cord war. That was our generational challenge of someone would didn't like yeah. the song, they'd go rip out the phone. And that's why that was the genesis of Rage Chill. It's like, we, you're just choosing the mood. We're either rage or we're chill right now. And don't rip out that aux cord. Right, we, yeah, yours was aux cord. Ours was the key to, to the stereo closet. Right? <laughs> so if you didn't have a key to the stereo closet, you can screw it. Right? Yeah. Well, one of, the thing, out of one of the things that we were super excited to have you on is so basically what happened was, and there's a lot still happening, was Drake and Weekend, some anonymous person had created a song um, in the likeness, the, vo the vocal likeness, the voice of Drake and Weekend. And it sounded pretty damn good. And everyone, and it got super famous. It was streaming on Spotify. They ended up taking it off because there, it was completely, um, they didn't know what was going to happen in terms of if the, if the labels were going to sue, what was Drake going to do, and so forth. Uh, and, the, and so they, they took it off. And then Grimes, uh, who I don't know if you're familiar, you said date Elon Musk, musician. Um, she, she's, she is progressive. So she essentially offered 50% royalties to anyone to who makes a song with her voice. And she actually ended up making an application, I think, that makes it easier for people to basically use her voice to, to, uh, to, to go make songs. So then there's this other, there's a, there's a couple of angles here. One is, if you're a famous artist, so, you know, Lennon or whomever, right? Elton John, let's take Elton John. Say he's like, hey, I'm, I'm iconic, right? People love my voice, they know it. I wanna go have another revenue stream and you can go use my voice for whatever it is. That's a potential new revenue stream. Right, but then also, if you're not, if you don't have the appropriate revenue share, then it gets super murky. So I just thought it was interesting. You've seen a few evolutions of this, Mark. So how does how do you think it shapes out? I mean, well, I don't know how it shapes. I mean, I think that there'll be all sorts of different. I think people are going to try all sorts of different models, right? And they're going to try and they're going to see, you know, what are the different things that stick, and what what is it that consumers will actually listen to? How do you can you create additional revenue streams and what revenue streams are they actually utilizing that are not taking away from their existing revenue streams? So is, is, are they incremental revenue streams or are they robbing the existing revenue streams? So they'll, they'll be all sorts of playing with those different things. And you're right, you know, there'll be people that are coming out and just using it for, for promotional purposes of, hey, I just want to get my name out there because any publicity is good publicity. And so there'll be all those different iterations around it. And and uh, just like streaming and whatnot, I just don't think, I don't think people are going to figure it out in the first few years, right? It's going to be, you know, three, four, five years before they figure out exactly what consumers are willing to pay for, how they're going to pay for it, and whatnot, and there'll be all sorts of people that are rushing through it, uh, knowing that they're not necessarily going to make money, but they're trying to prove out different models that could potentially work. My mind went to when I saw some of this tech to the one of the clear channel models, I think, uh, and correct me if this is wrong, is like, okay, you have stations in a bunch of different markets. You can now go and do a deal with Ryan Seacrest and nationally syndicate. And everyone likes him. It's sort of a precursor to to YouTube stars or whatever. Like everyone's kind of watching the same creator from every market. And uh, so my mind went to there's something similar in that to me where, okay, if there's a certain voice that everyone wants to hear, could you have AI draft? Here's the weather in every market, and have this recreated mm. voice read through, and that's the morning report as you drive into work via the radio. Um, 
but is that even a cost center? You know, like, is it a big deal? Like, well, where's so, the oh, value no, in that me, actually? Let me, let me jump yeah. in. So, so, so do you know the uh, Vin Diesel for the movie Guardians of the Galaxy got paid like tens of millions of dollars to be the voice of Groot? And there's a hilarious video of him just saying Groot in like 10 to, or 100. He apparently said it thousands of times, different inflections. By the way, you don't have to do that anymore. And you could just like the cop. So to answer your question, yes, I think in animated movies and that sort of thing, they do actually bring in famous people to, to do these voices and they pay them a shitload of money, right? So they might, I think that complete, I mean, there's just a general theme around like the cost of production of things going down. By the way, you used to, with an artist, now you can do a lot of things with AI, like automatically generate, you know, think about like Dr. Dre, right? He would create all these beats and produce music and that sort of thing. If you can automatically take away the things that were difficult with regards to creative production, in this case music, it totally changes the cost curve of this stuff. It makes it easier. We interviewed an illustrator yesterday, and he was like, I spent two decades learning how to be an illustrator, and now you can create something that makes a pretty good version very easily, right, right there. So I don't know. I think it changes a lot of things in terms of the, the cost centers. I do. I, I think that's probably right. I think the, uh, you know, I think it will all depend upon the, the consumer and what they're willing to pay for and not pay for. There is intellectual property, right? If you're trying to be Vin Diesel, if you're trying to be Ryan Seacrest, if you're trying or you're saying this is Ryan Seacrest, there's protections. So you can't, you know, you can't uh, try to be somebody uh, that you're not. So there are protections around that intellectual property. Is there property really? Like if you're an impersonator, you couldn't be hired to impersonate Forget AI for a second. If I would just had a great Vin Diesel voice, I couldn't be hired to do a Vin Diesel voice on a movie. If somewhere in the contract that explicitly, I guess, mentioned like Vin Diesel. Well, well, you couldn't, you couldn't, you you could be, but you couldn't uh, try to be Vin. You could use a, a AI generated voice, but you couldn't try to be being Vin Diesel. If that makes sense. In other mm -hmm. words, you couldn't portray yourself as being Vin Diesel. You can just, this is my voice, mm -hmm. right? Well, well here, here, here's, another, so, here's another scenario. Um, recently, Ed Sheeran was in a lawsuit. I'm not sure if you're familiar. And basically, I think that the concept of the lawsuit was he used some riff or some guitar riff that was like similar to someone from the past. And his argument, he actually did, he won, but the, the, uh, the legal decision, but he's like, dude, musicians borrow from other musicians, um, you know, whether it's a guitar kind of any kind of chord or whatever all the time, that's how music is created, right? Like it's iterative. And so that's interesting. It doesn't have to be a voice, by the way, it could be a beat. It could be a progression. I don't know. Correct. So all that is, although that, yeah, it's all what is going to be the intellectual property of the future. Yeah. And I wonder how, I guess if you hear a voice that sounds like Tom Cruise in a commercial and you're Tom Cruise and you say, that's not right. They're using my voice, but they don't claim it's Tom Cruise or something. I guess the discovery of the lawsuit at that point would have to, my guess, where the legal frontier might be is, did you train this AI on Tom Cruise's voice? Clips of him. And if so, then that's you yeah. know the illegal well, impersonation, yeah. I think. I mean, I, I, none of us are attorneys, so I guess we're, we're in pure speculation land. But I don't that think also by the way, wrong. I don't think attorney. I don't think attorneys know this. We're going to have to get Alan on the phone to maybe maybe oh, give yeah. us a full sure, uh, rendition. Yeah. 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 We'll have to phone him in. Uh, 
last thing we definitely wanted to get to, and this is more of a PSA, um, I will, we're not going to do this live on the call, but there's this tool called play.ht for everyone aware. You can record as short as a 30-second clip of your own voice, and it will recreate it. And, of course, you can go deeper and upload more and train a more realistic voice, but I've done this already for Morgan Freeman. And after the call, I'll actually do one based on one of these recordings for you, Mark, and just text it to you for you to see how creepy it is. All these scams. I hate to hear another nasal A few years ago, my wife's grandparents called and were freaking out because someone was calling them and saying that they'd been in a car wreck and they were at a hospital and they needed money. And it didn't sound anything like my wife, but it was real enough and scary enough that they were calling to verify. And imagine if they somehow trained this voice to sound like her and did the same thing with the scam call. And uh, this is one thing I think you should bring up with your family, that you need a, a uh, safe word for, for scam calls, where if someone is impersonating your voice with this technology, you, can, you, know, you need to say like pineapple or rolling stone belt or something to know that <laughs> it's actually you and that it's real. Because uh, because these scams are going to get out of control. I totally agree with that, and they and they definitely they uh, as you know they always uh, they prey on the elderly and the people that uh, would be fearful and maybe not quite as uh, cognitive that there could be things like this out there. But I, I I think that's good, and I'd love any recommendations for family words for the Mays family. Those would be good. Uh, Rolling Stones. Uh, we can't do that know, one now. I think we maybe, talked about it too much. On the- now I know we have. Now we have to do. I have to do something yeah. else. But if you could text me offline any creative uh, ones that potentially you know all you got because you guys know all six all six Mays kids. Yeah. You know which one? Well, what there's definitely a Vanderbilt theme here, so maybe Branscom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, Sam. I would. I would say. I want to end on a more general note. You've seen. I think it's pretty crazy to think about the pace of technological innovation, right? When you were a banker, I mean, you you joke, right? But you were probably using a lot different technology than people now. And then we look ahead, and even in our lifetime, in your lifetime, you're going to see crazy progress. How are, how do you feel just generally on AI? Not even, I mean, maybe how it relates to music, but just like the pace of technological innovation. Are you optimistic? Are you kind of nervous or scared? Are you kind of ambivalent? What's like the vibe? So I'm not, I'm, I am not nervous. I'm not scared. I'm not worried. You know, I think, uh, I think that technology is, is something you have to embrace. It's something that is gonna, it's coming. It's, uh, you know, you're never going to regulate it, uh, uh, Whoever was, you know, saying that it needs to be yeah, regulated. Or yeah. I just don't know how you regulate. Yeah, yeah, you can't regulate. How do you regulate? Yeah. And 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 there's going to be those people that don't want to regulate, and they're not going to be within the U.S. And there's just there's no way to regulate it. And so you embrace it, and you just I think you embrace it, and you try to be ahead of it, and you try to uh, figure out how to utilize it. Uh, and it's gonna it's gonna change. It's gonna change what people do, just as 
everything, if you look back what people were doing 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, there's just been an evolutionary change with regard to workplace and what people do and mm -hmm. everything to that extent. So, you know, it's the old adage of you got to constantly be learning new things in order to be a, you know, a better person or a better uh, work workforce uh, into the future. So I just think that that's part of uh, what people have to do is embrace it, you know, and be holistic around it. I love that. I mean, based on the wire spread and printer in your background, I you're definitely embracing technology. I love it. <laughs> the wire. There's a lot of wires, but that is We're hey in the same guys. You wouldn't have, where's we that? Have wires everywhere. That's a snake river. Where, where is that picture taken? You guys have been there. I have a great picture of you two sitting on the cliff in oh, the snow, yeah. right will, there, looking out over picnic point. We will end the podcast with that picture. I have it starred <laughs> and favorited in my phone. One of the all-time pics of us from from school at uh, y'all spot in Jackson Hole. Uh, that's Holding it. beer, looking right at there. that beautiful yeah. scene. Yeah. So, so with that, with that, thank you so much for the time, Mark, and uh, hopefully see you live soon. Talk to you soon. All right, guys, St. Louis, San Antonio, or you know, at at the next wedding, we'll, we will catch up. Absolutely. Right. Cheers. Awesome, awesome chatting. Have an awesome day. This is Play.ht. It's one of many services where you can both use ultra realistic voices. Um, or you can upload audio and actually clone a voice. So I'm using play.ht in a little app I created where you can call and talk to GPT-4 and it'll stream back a response and use a play.ht ultra realistic voice to read back ChatGPT essentially or GPT-4's response. But after our episode with Mark, I wanted to show him what his voice sounded like once uploaded and so I took his entire audio track and I created an account here on play.ht and you come into the dashboard and you've got a bunch of options, but I went here to voice cloning and clicked clone a voice and uploaded his audio track. So that's just the audio track that was recorded, recorded on Riverside, only him, uh, the Mark Mays audio track. It was very long. It was about an hour's worth of audio and I uploaded that to play.ht. It processed overnight. I went to bed. I woke up this morning and we had a cloned voice. So I opened up the studio and recorded or just typed in these words, these two clips and generated previews. So we will play those for you now. Um, and you make of it what you will in terms of how similar it is to his voice. I think it's uncanny. So here's the first sentence. Hey, it's Mark. My favorite two people in the world are Will and Suman. And then here's the second. As an avid fan of rap music, I'm a believer in the Tupac. Biggie conspiracy, and I'm hoping that Biggie Smalls comes out of hiding and decides to run for president. It's the inflection and intonation that's different in these new language models. I mean, these new audio models that are replicating voices. The pausing and timing isn't perfect, but it's way better than it used to be on those robotic voices of really paying attention to the commas, the inflection of the voice, how you end the sentence, how you timing, timing going into the end of the sentence. It's really, really, really good. And this is what scammers are gonna start using to call and claim to be somebody that they're not and tell you that they have an emergency and to wire money, leave a voicemail on the voice of 
somebody whose audio they just ripped off of YouTube or Instagram or something like that. Let us know what you think.